Welcome back to the 71st episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including talking about the working class origins of woke capital, how the amateur investor has been hit hard over the last year and is starting to retreat a bit, and then a new type of tourism comes to Oregon. And yes, I am being a little bit cutesy, but in order to figure out what it is, you're going to have to listen to that point because it's a, it's a doozy of a story, I'll put it that way. And then, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So throughout this podcast, I'm going to be talking about incentives and incentive structures a lot. And honestly, you'll probably get a little bit tired about hearing it. But I really feel like in today's world, we're full of good intentions, but surrounded by bad incentives. So how do we push back? How do we as a populace change the incentive structures that are present in our society? Or are we Sisyphus pushing a boulder up a hill, fighting human nature, and not going to get anywhere at the end of the day? And I think these are important questions just to put into context and to keep in mind as you're listening through the podcast. Because at the end of the day, we are human beings. We have certain incentives, guilty pleasures, or just flaws that at the end of the day, we can't always control, or at least it's very hard to mitigate. So when we're going through and listening to some of these things, ask yourself, is this human nature, or is this imposed by our society? Have we brought this upon ourselves through the way that we do things now? And it's not just an underlying human issue. All right, let's jump to our first story. This one comes from The American Prospect. The Working Class Roots of Woke Capital. So did you know that retirement funds own about a quarter of all stocks of American companies? So this is pension funds. We're talking about hedge funds. Basically, any fund that is used by organizations or just people in general, maybe an IRA, a 401k, uh, these type of funds, they have almost a quarter of all the stocks of American companies that are listed on the stock exchange. That gives them an, a lot, a lot. I was going to say an outsized, but not necessarily outsized. It gives them a lot of negotiating power. And yet, most members of these pension plans have no control over where their money is being invested. Quote, pension funds originally arose after World War II when labor unions gained the legal right to bargain for employer-sponsored retirement plans, subsidized by the federal government through generous tax exemptions and deductions. But federal labor law limited employees' collective control over the funds themselves, which employers began investing in the stock market in the 1950s, providing a vital source of capital for corporations as well as income for retirees. The landmark Employee Retirement Income Security Act, ERSA, set fiduciary duty standards for pension fund trustees, requiring them to focus narrowly on maximizing financial returns 
at the preferred level of risk of their investment portfolios. The cost of workers' wages, jobs, and rights, which skyrocketed as retirement funds fueled the financial reconstruction of the economy over the following decades, were explicitly secondary under the interpretation of the law, end quote. So basically, what the author's saying here is with URSA, fund managers had to make their clients more money. I feel like, and this is me being a little bit cutesy, but I, I feel like that's the responsibility of the fund managers. That's the responsibility of the people who you give your money to. You don't just give your money to Uncle Joe and say, oh, yeah, throw it in the stock market. I expect a return of at least 10%. But if you don't get it, it's fine. No, you're giving it to asset managers. You're giving it to the people who you trust to grow your funds and ensure that you're going to have money at the end of your life when you're retiring. So while the author does make some good arguments going forward here, I just want to point out that they're starting on the premise that at the end of the day, these funds are not a good thing, or at least the way the incentive structure is, is not a good thing for these workers. And they, like I said, they lay out some good arguments. But at the end of the day, if you're putting your money away for retirement, you want that money to grow. So if you don't want that money to grow and you want more of it now, then you opt out of a retirement plan and you subsidize or you kind of add to the wages that you're making now if you're really worried about that. Because that's the argument that they're making. They're saying that because these... Actually, let me just go to the part where I actually describe what they're getting at here. The author argues with their funds at asset managers used by their pension, these asset managers get on the boards of large companies and then they push for the cutting of costs, which eventually hurt the working class. So the author's not necessarily saying that, okay, at the end of the day, these pension plans are hurting the exact workers that are investing in them. But if you think about a railroad union, they put their money into a pension plan. Then the asset manager who uses that money goes onto the board of a big company, let's say Amazon. And then it's pushing for Amazon to cut costs and to make sure that you're making as much profit as possible, make sure the share price is always going up. That's hurting Amazon workers because they're pushing them to be more efficient, to cut costs in places, so maybe they're cutting out certain jobs and replacing them with automated machines. And then the same thing happens at another union. They get put their money into the a asset manager, and they go and slash uh, prices at a different company. And it's just a giant circle of these unions putting money into the stock market and then the asset managers going around and saying, okay, well, now we need to cut costs in these other places. So the workers are hurting the working class by allowing these asset managers to go around and start cutting prices and put pressure on these boards to increase the share value. Because, as Ursa says, these managers are trying to make the most money for the people that have invested with them. But, like the author said, and I've said it a few times, that system the way that that's laid out means that you're actually going to hurt other workers in the economy. And I think that is a good starting point. I think that's a good way to have a, a brief understanding of what's happening here. And the author continues along these lines and eventually ends up at ESG. 
So the author, when getting to this ESG topic, is implying that ESG practices and the implementation of these ESG scores by certain asset managers like BlackRock, these practices in these corporations and companies will actually shift their focus from providing value to stockholders and more to the stakeholder. But, and it also forces them to focus on longevity rather than short-term returns. And, you know, this sounds really nice on its top level, or at least on the surface. Let's focus more on providing value to society as a whole than just our shareholders. And this is essentially what unions and BlackRock are correcting for. Or let's take a step back. ESG has been implemented in order to ensure that companies are being responsible. And the author is arguing here that ESG can be used as a tool to ensure that practices are sustainable for the long term of our society. So you could argue, and I am arguing here, that the unions who are now starting to push for ESG when they're giving their money to these asset managers, they're saying, hey, put it in a fund that is ESG friendly. Make sure that the companies that we're giving our money to support these causes. And BlackRock, one of the first users of ESG, one of the pioneering firms in Wall Street really pushing hard on ESG and going around to the companies that they're on the board of, which is probably 75% of the largest uh, companies on the, the NASDAQ. Now, don't quote me on that. They're on a lot of big boards, let's put it that way. They're going around and pushing this ESG. And when I hear this, and when I hear this argument laid out in this way, it sounds like the unions are correcting for their previous mess-up of the incentive structures. So at the end of the day, these unions are the ones that said, hey, we are going to argue for a pension plan. We are going to say that we want a state-backed pension plan with incentives that is also helped out by the employer so our employees, our members, can live fruitful lives in their retirement. But in doing so, when they said, let's put it in the stock market, they failed to understand the point of the stock market which is to invest in companies and to gain a little bit of money. I know this is a more modern conception because the stock market used to be a way to ensure that you're giving money to companies that you believe in and that you think their investments are worth it and they'll help society. And we've kind of shifted to a more, oh, well, it's just an investment kind of mentality with the stock market. But still, the unions fail to understand that at the end of the day, if you're giving your money to an asset manager, they will want to get more money for your pension plan. And that may mean that they go around to other companies and start saying, well, where can we cut costs a little bit? And maybe that hurts workers. And now, instead of saying, okay, no, we need to come up with a new solution. Maybe we do treasury bonds. Maybe we allow our people in the pension plan to choose what companies they want individually in their own little fund, even though that would be a little bit more tedious because at the end of the day, the power that comes from the fund and the power that it exerts is because it has a lot of collective funds. But at the end of the day, they're just saying, okay, well, you know, we're, we're going to try to fix the screw up that we made rather than 
reevaluating why the screw up was made in the first place. And I don't necessarily love this author's position on stock buybacks either, because they outright criticize it, saying that these companies are just buying back their stock in order to inflate their cost, in order to inflate their stock price. So then they can say, oh, yeah, look, we, we made more money for our shareholders this year not realizing that some stock buybacks really are just to inflate price. But a lot of stock buybacks are in order to give them to your employees. You buy stocks off the open market, which does increase the share price. That's a nice benefit. But very often, you hold them in reserve. You don't just buy them back and say, oh, no, they don't exist anymore. You may issue them in the future, or you give them to employees so that they have a reason to stay with your company. They have a reason to be invested in your company because they get the profits at the end of the day when they retire. They have those stocks or from a basically from a p- options plan. So think of Facebook. They do a lot of this. They actually give their employees stock options. And when you see Facebook buying back stock off the public uh, market, they're not just doing it to inflate the price. They're doing it because they don't want to create new tier a stock interiorly they want to have stock that is directly correlated with the stock that's publicly traded so then they're giving their employees stock that's valuable but not overvalued and i think that that's something the author kind of misses here quote the most immediate reform should be extending tax subsidized saving plans for all american workers the new federal secure act too take several steps in that direction, requiring businesses with more than 10 employees to offer retirement plans and making the tax credit for employee contributions refundable. So low-wage workers who owe no income tax can get the subsidy to save. Several states, led by Illinois and followed by New York and California, have gone further in the past few years, allowing private sector workers to join the retirement plans for public employees which charge much lower fees than private funds, end quote. So this is a very important issue because we want to encourage savings. We want to encourage people in these unions, or not even just people in these unions, just anybody who may have to retire one day. We want to incentivize them to save. That's It's crucial to ensure that they have a little bit of money so that they can have a good standard of life when they go into their retirement. And I really do understand the point of these programs. They make it more beneficial. They make it more profitable to save. But let me pose you a question. Where does personal agency come into the equation? How much incentivizing are we going to have to do? We already have a mandatory Social Security tax. What's next? a mandatory savings tax for retirement that goes into a private account that you can't touch until you're 65, 70 years old. At some point, people need to stop saying, hey, we're going to make it easy for you. We are going to make it as easy as possible for you to invest your money and leave it up to the individual. If they want to be responsible, if they want to have a cushy retirement, maybe they put 50% of their yearly income into retirement and they really cut hard on their budget. They make sure they're not spending money where they don't need to. They're getting by on the other 50% or 
or if they have a partner, maybe they're getting by on their 50% plus the partner's 50%. We have to encourage people to make better decisions. And having a restructure plan, a reform plan to these programs and trying to incentivize people with government subsidies and things of this nature, I don't think it's a proper way to go about it. We need a cultural shift. We need a mindset shift. We need people to actively choose the more responsible path rather than being told or incentivized to do so. That's just my opinion on that one. I know this. I was all over the place in this one, but it's a really complex issue, and I think it speaks to some underlying things that we need to address in society, but also some problems that we've had with unionization, with pension funds, also with the idea that the stock market is no longer about investing in companies. It's actually about throwing money at a share and hoping that one day it appreciates a little bit rather than investing in the technology of the company or the leaders of said company. But let's jump to our second story. This one comes from the Wall Street Journal. The Retreat of the Amateur Investor. So for some, investing is a way to save for retirement, as we were just talking about. For others, it's a job. And for others, during COVID, it was an activity that you know may have turned out to give them a little bit of money. It occupied their time, and it was a good way to use part of their stimulus check. It was the rise of the amateur investor. Quote, during the pandemic lockdowns in 2020 and 2021, Scores of Americans got hooked on trading stocks, options, and cryptocurrencies, driving up shares of companies that were once left for dead. Now, some of these so-called retail investors are backing away from the markets after the worst year for stocks since 2008. Other than pairing their position or shifting their money to more conservative holdings, such as bonds or cash. Last month, trading activity among retail investors was measured by dollar volume hit its lowest level since January 2020, according to an analysis of some platforms by research firm Vanda Research. These investors are also trading less with brokerages than stocked their enthu- that stoked their enthusiasm earlier in the pandemic, according to earnings reports. Households are expected to yank roughly $100 billion from the market in 2023, according to Goldman Sachs Groups, Inc., which would be the first net outflow since 2018, end quote. But unlike institutional investors, volatility and risk that are associated with trading stocks, a lot of these amateur investors see it as an opportunity. So they're more often willing to do shorter time frame trades, maybe a week, maybe day trading. And volatility in the market when it is going up, like in the pandemic times, versus volatility when the market is going down is a very different thing. And now we're seeing the market is trending down, but it's also very volatile. So these amateur investors, they're not willing to jump in one day and get out in two days because it's so volatile. Before, when it was trending up, at least if it's volatile and trending up, you can make a little bit of money. You're more likely to make a little bit of money versus now where it's you can't guarantee that. So the amateur investors, they're saying, okay, we're going to back away. After these big losses, I don't see my prevailing strategy that worked at the beginning of the pandemic working now. So I'm going to stop investing as much. 
And the reason that I think this is scary is, is twofold. One, amateur investors are the single largest holders of U.S. equities. So even though their power is diffused among millions of people, they still have a large amount of power. And if they are losing faith and taking money out of the market, then that can be a dangerous downward spiral. If they no longer have faith and they don't think that the stock market is a good store of their money and they're trying to take it out while they can before the stock prices crash even more, it can create a runaway effect. The other amateur investors, and like I said, they are the largest holders of U.S. equity. If they see this trend of a really sharp downfall of the market, a lot of them will say, oh, I need to get out now. I need to get out and secure some of my gains or make sure that I don't get more losses. And you'll have a lot of the institutional or traditional investors who have invested long-term, long-frame. They're like, okay, yeah, no, we, we, can, we can live it out. We can handle it. The market goes down all the time. But the amateur investors who are just now getting into it and don't have that mentality may be encouraged to pull their money out, which creates, like I said, a runaway effect. Because you see people pulling their money out, you pull your money out, which encourages other people to pull their money out, so on and so forth. It's kind of a run on the banks, but a run on the stock market. The second scary part in my opinion, is over the last few years, we've really seen a democratization. And yes, I probably mispronounced that. I'm not going to try to get it 100% right because I'm bad at pronunciations. But we've seen a decentralization of stock trading. You know, and this could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. People in the institutions would say it's a bad thing. No, we need to make sure that trustworthy, regulated companies are holding people's money and the common investor, the public man, is probably like, no, we don't want you to have centralized power on Wall Street of where our money goes. And, you know, we've seen the rise of companies like Robinhood, Public, Weeble. And they make most of their money when people are making trades. So if the volumes of trades go down, then they make less money. And you can see how this is a problem if the amateur investor, the retail investor who's using these apps to invest is saying, oh, no, we need to slow down on our trades. We don't necessarily want to trade as much. We don't want to expose ourselves to as much risk. That means that these companies are making less money. And at the end of the day, if these companies fail, then you have to go back to the original brokerage system where they charge outrageous amount of fees, where you're supposed to just sit down, take what they give you, it really just trusts the advice of the experts. And at the end of the day, I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing because like I did mention, it is more regulated, which can be a good thing. But I do believe that spreading out the power, spreading out the ways in which that you can access the stock market, having more of them is a good thing. Having it be a little bit more decentralized is a good thing. I don't want the Black Rocks, the State Streets, the Vanguards, and yes, I know I probably sound like a conspiracy theorist at this point, to have uh, outsized control over the money that's going into the stock market and being invested in different corporations. So it does scare me when I see people pulling away from retail investing because Robinhood, Public, Weebles, all these companies have made their rise based on the retail investor. And I don't necessarily think they're going anywhere right now. 
But if we see a big crash and a lot of people pull out all their money at one time, it's possible that we see one or two of these guys close. So we'll see how that one pans out. And that's why I think it's a little bit scary because I do enjoy at least having access to the stock market through these programs. Let's be clear. I have a brokerage account too. I have all these apps and I have a brokerage account. So I'm kind of walking the line. But I think having options is a good thing, especially when it comes to small micro investments. You don't want to get charged of the $5 fees just to invest $100 worth. Uh, so at the end of the day, Robinhood, Webull, Publix is a good way to expose new investors so they can kind of fiddle around a little bit, see how the market is without exposing themselves to too much risk. So we live in an era where algorithms and quants rule the trading world, making trading faster than it ever could be, faster than the snap of your fingers, honestly, and only buying stocks because they see the likelihood that the stock is going to rise. They have an algorithm that predicts, oh, this is probably going to go up within the next few days. Let's buy it. Rather than investing in the company and the people who run it. And that's what I think retail investors do more often than the institutional investors. Institutional investors, they see the algorithms. They say, we can make our shareholders money. We can make the people in our funds money. Let's buy this up. Versus the retail investor who, don't get me wrong, they may follow trends. But sometimes they see something really special in a company. They see something they really like. They believe in the message, even if the fundamentals of the company aren't there. And they want to take a leap of faith. And that's what retail investors do sometimes. And I think that's there's something beautiful about that that brings the stock market back to what it used to be, which is you have a, a friend who has a company or you just have a company that you believe in. You like the leadership. You like something about them. You like the technology. You believe in them. Then you invest in them. It's not always about making money. It's also about encouraging growth of innovation in the economy. But I know I've rambled on that one for a while. So let's just jump to a really quick story from National Review. Suicide tourism comes to Oregon. Yes, I know. Very sensational title. Quote, assisted suicide activists always promise that strict guidelines will protect against abuse. It's a big con. The guidelines are not really strict. They rely primarily on self-reporting, and they are meant to be temporary. As soon as political conditions permit, the access to doctor-prescribed death expands. Witness Oregon. When Measure 16 passed, assisted suicide was limited to state residents. That requirement was recently deemed inoperative by the state's ever-flaccid sorry, didn't want to say that word, suicide regulators after a lawsuit was settled and is expected to soon be replaced. That threatens to open the floodgates and transform Oregon into the U.S. equivalent of Switzerland, where suicide clinics flourish, end quote. So I chose this article because it kind of, it spoke to me. I used to be, I mean, more actually, I'm still in the middle. I'm still debating assisted suicide. I believe that human life is intrinsically, inherently valuable. By solely existing, there's some sort of value to someone's life. Even if you have only made one person smile, you have added something to this world. But I also believe that those who are in a great deal of pain, it kind of is mercy to help them move on from this world. 
And I believe that they should be able to make that decision for themselves. But never did I imagine it would be turned into an industry with clinics, doctors, etc. And this is something that really scares the poop out of me. That we would create an industry that incentivizes, that has an incentive structure to set up a way for people to kill themselves, to not value their life, to take their own life. I mean, look at Canada. They've recently passed a suicide bill where if you feel mentally distressed and you don't see a way out of it, you can off yourself. That is a very far jump, in my opinion, from physical pain of a cancer patient or even someone who is suffering Alzheimer's who we have not come up with a cure yet and their quality of life will just go downhill. I think there could be an argument made for that as well. But they're saying, no, just if you are mentally ill, if you are depressed, if you do not see a way out of this world, then you can kill yourself. Now, sometimes depression is something that persists for a long amount of time. But other times, depression is temporary. And how do you know a year down the road that you're going to think the same way and value your life the same way you would right now? And that's what I find a little bit scary. Quote, other states are also loosening strict guidelines. For example, Vermont permits virtual assisted suicide, meaning the consultation can be over Zoom or Skype. California has attempted to compel doctors to participate in an assisted suicide process after promising MDs in order to get the law passed that they would not have to do anything that they didn't want to. The new anti-consciousness law is on hold after a lawsuit. Other states where assisted suicide has been legalized have similarly loosened waiting times and procedures. The ultimate goal, or at least the consequence, of following assisted suicide in euthanasia is death on demand. Some jurisdictions are getting there faster. Germany, Belgium, and the Netherlands, and Canada and some slower, such as Oregon, Vermont, California, and Colorado. But the tide only flows in one direction, end quote. So some have argued that this is part of a grand conspiracy to limit the amount of people on this planet, which I, I don't know if that's true. I don't really care, I'm going to be honest. If it's a grand conspiracy or it's just the process of our society working, it doesn't matter. It's still scary, in my opinion, and it's still not a good thing, in my opinion, to create an incentive structure that encourages industries to tell people, oh, yes, your situation is hopeless. You should kill yourself because I'll get that extra money if you do. I'll get that extra death bonus if my numbers are up this week. I think, and let's be clear, I think there is good intentions. There's always good intentions. Oh, well, we want to end people's pain. We want to end people's suffering. Like I said at the beginning, if you're in a great deal of pain, I feel for you, and I think you should have a choice. And I think that that's the good intention that people who actually will make a lot of money off of this may exploit, and that's what's scary to me. And I think at the end of the day, we need to understand why this incentive is coming about. Is it just about money? Is it genuinely about helping people? And we need to weigh whether or not the incentives, the intentions 
are worth the consequences of having an industry that encourages you to kill yourself if you can't see a way out. All right. I know that was deep. That was dark. That was sad. Let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Wide Open Spaces. Tiny Bear Cub struggles to climb massive snowbank as car goes by. So there's nothing quite like a mama bear teaching her cubs how to make it in the world. Quote, in the adorable video, two of the three little guys make it from the roadway to the top of the snowbank, but one little guy is having a hard time. No matter what he does, he cannot jump up to where his mom is and siblings are standing. The car creeps along the road next to them, capturing the scene. Little cub runs down the road a little, attempting to jump up in a different spot. End quote. But that is not the only thing that the mama bear's trying to teach. It's not the only lesson that she's imparting on her kids today. She's also trying to show them that they need to stand up for themselves and the ones that they love. Quote, she runs over to the cub but catches the car at the corner of her eye. The distressed cub is quickly left sitting on the side of the road as she charges full speed at the car. The situation was stressful enough without humans standing by to document all of it. Of course, as soon as the mama bear did what mama bears do best, the drivers hightailed it out of there. End quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of this cub trying to get up and mama bear being a protective mama bear, or if you want to read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below, that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you'll find links to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, Podvine. And if you want to listen there, you can download them, take them on the road with you, anything like that. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die. <laughs>